I love to be in the outdoors. And oftentimes, as a family, we're around bodies of water. So rivers, lakes, the ocean. As I stood on the ocean, just uh, we were at the beach just last week. Was it last week? A few weeks ago. Standing there looking at the ocean and thinking, where does all of this water come from? There's so much water. There's just endless amounts. And as if you ever, as you've stood on the beach before and you've seen that, or if you've stood on a lake before and you've felt the breeze and you've looked at the water, like where is this coming from? We used to live in Mooresville, North Carolina. Lake Norman is the largest man-made lake in the state of North Carolina. It's huge. But there was one time that was very fascinating to me. I was in the mountains near Black Mountain, North Carolina, hiking, and I came across this trickle just coming up out of the ground. And as that trickle came down the mountain and formed a little stream and got bigger and bigger, and other streams came into it and became a a waterfall called Catawba Falls, which you can see here on this slide. Catawba Falls is the mouth, this little trickle, which becomes these waterfalls, which grows into this river, is the Catawba River, which if you drive on I-40, you cross it multiple times. It just gets bigger. If you're coming from Asheville, you cross it and it's small. You cross it a second time, it's bigger. And you cross it a third time, it's huge. But this is the tributary for Lake Norman, the largest man-made lake in North Carolina. And it eventually flows to the Atlantic Ocean. You stand on these bodies of water and you think about how in the midst of the mountains, this little trickle is creating these huge bodies of water. They're called tributaries. These streams that come from everywhere are tributaries that feed into all of this. Well, as we look at the book of Ruth and as we look at the Old Testament, today we are going to be looking at how the Old Testament is feeding into the New Testament. When you stand on the refreshing lakes of the Gospels and you hear the message of Jesus, those, that message is coming from the tributaries of the Old Testament, what, the, prof, what the, the law and the prophets and the writings used to be called, as they are guiding and moving into and filling up the New Testament. All of the New Testament is based on this. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. Then when you get to the ocean of the book of Revelation and you find that it's come to to an end and you see the rejoicing that the church is going to have as we all gather together in the end, we get the opportunity to see and experience what the law and the prophets and the writings were pointing towards, where all of that movement was coming. So the Old Testament is valuable. It's extremely valuable in shaping our understanding of the New Testament. The New Testament is valuable in shaping our understanding of the Old Testament. They work together. So when we look at the book of Ruth this morning, and as as this is our last Sunday in the book of Ruth, and we look at how all of that is coming together, we find out and we discover that the book of Ruth, the setting is in the time of the judges. Now it's interesting There is no king in Israel at this time, in the time of Judges. And it says in Judges that the people would do whatever they felt like they wanted to do. 
There were no, didn't seem to be any governing laws. There was no king guiding them through this. There were these individual judges, but all throughout time, things were just chaotic. So this is the setting of the book of Ruth. They are living in this time, and then they become exiles and refugees as they move out of that in search of food. See, in the midst of this chaotic time, it's also a famine. Things have just fallen apart in Israel. And so they're trying to figure out how to, all of this is going to come together. So if you look in the book of Ruth in chapter 4, the, this book ends in chapter 4 with a son being born. That's how all of this concludes. And last week, you can go on, on the podcast and you can find Pastor Lawrence's sermon from last week where he talks about this. He talks about this baby being born. But this son, in, in chapter 4, verse 13, is born in Bethlehem. This child in Bethlehem is born. Very significant. It's very interesting how oftentimes the scriptures will highlight these certain things. They'll bring out these, it'll bring out these themes, like spotlights. Like I used to I like to call them like lighthouses on these cliffs. These dangerous cliffs that ships are going to hit, these lighthouses. The scripture is sending out a signal to us. When there are repetitive moments in scripture, God's trying to get our attention. A child is born in Bethlehem, in Ruth chapter 4, is a significant moment in the book of Ruth for us. Because it reminds us, and it triggers our mind to think, oh, there is also a child born in Bethlehem in the Gospels. And it's very important that we link that. Because the book of Ruth is making great pains to link those together. So when you see that, you see that this child is born. And then in verse 17, it says, They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then a genealogy is started. So a lot of times we get to the genealogies in the Bible and we're like, whew, let me get through this. He is the son of somebody who begets somebody who begets somebody who's the son of somebody. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And a lot of times we just get caught up in all these names and all this stuff. And it doesn't many times make a lot of sense to us. So Pastor Lawrence asked me to preach on this. He said, I want you to preach on the genealogy in Ruth. Like, yeah, that'll be interesting for everyone involved to listen to me speak on the genealogy in Ruth, right? But it, there is a very interesting thing going on here. So let's read it, starting in verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. In Matthew chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, this genealogy is found there as well. So let's all look at Matthew chapter 1 and kind of picture this as well. Starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Remember, recognize those names? Yeah. Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now that is a lot of names to get to an important thing. But what is really fascinating when I read Matthew is the mention of these women in the genealogy. You know, we cannot miss that Boaz's mom is Rahab. And we cannot miss that Boaz married Ruth. And that those names of these women are mentioned. So Tamar is mentioned first in, from, in Matthew 1.3, coming from the story in Genesis 38. Not a woman of great repute in what she did, but, all, but honored because of what she did. You, go, you talk about some good reading on a Sunday afternoon. Go read Genesis 38 this afternoon. It is a wild story of just trickery and deception in order to be able to fulfill the family line. But God is at work providentially in even that. Then you get to Rahab, and we know the story of Rahab, a prostitute who's Boaz's mom, who is rescued by the Israelites as they take on Jericho. Then you get to Ruth. We find out she's a Moabite woman. We see Bathsheba mentioned, not by name, but as the wife of Uriah. We see Mary mentioned, who is spoken to as an angel, told she's going to be pregnant, and she has to live life like that for a while as a pregnant teenager without a husband. And as we look at the lives of these women and we look at this, and we start to think about the blood of Jesus, we start to see that Jesus has Jewish blood in him. Jesus has Canaanite blood in him from Rahab. Jesus has Moabite blood in him by Ruth. It seems that God 
made a lot of things happen in order to get Moabite, Canaanite, and Jewish blood in the bloodstream of Jesus. The blood of the nations of the world flowing through the veins of His Son. The purpose is that God's heart is for the nations. It truly is. Jesus comes from the nations and He dies for the nations. The blood that was shed on the cross was ethnic in all of its diversity. John Piper said, All ethnocentric and racist impulses are crucified in Christ. My lovely wife, who's a shining example of beauty this morning, <laughs> told me a wonderful story. There was a man who had a daughter who was in college and was tragically killed in some way. But she was an organ donor. And from her death, four people's lives were saved through organ donations. Well, the father discovered that the person that received his daughter's heart, that he would have the opportunity to meet this person. It was a young man. So the father biked across the country to go meet this young man who had been given his daughter's heart. Now this man and his daughter, they were white. And his daughter's heart was given to a family who was African American. And as he came to this family, someone presented him with a stethoscope. And as he put the stethoscope to the heart of this young man, he listened to the beating heart of his daughter. Bridging the gap between these two families along ethnic lines, but also seeing that his daughter brought life to this young man. And as I listened to that story, I could not help but think about what Christ has done for us. Our Father's love for us is seen in this. His Son died and transplanted into us His perfect righteous record. He gave us life, exchanging places with us and providing us with life. The Son's heart is literally poured out for us. And when God looks on us, when He examines our heart, He hears the heartbeat of His own Son who died in our place. His own Son's heart was given to us in that respect. In redemption, when we talk about the Redeemer in the book of Ruth, in redemption, we become the adopted children of God through Jesus' death, purchasing us. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Christian life is a redeemed life. Naomi's Redeemer ultimately and in time and genealogy became our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So what does this look like for our everyday life? When Pastor Lawrence spoke on the Redeemer last week, what does it look like for us to live as those who are redeemed? What does it look like for us to live in that way? You know, the concepts that this brings out for us are twofold. One is adoption, this theological concept of adoption. And the other one is this theological concept of redemption. And we're going to talk about those. You see, the, re the redeemed life is death. That's the great, you know, the, the great interesting and fascinating thing of Christianity. It's a paradox. The redeemed life is death. And, you know, we use these phrases in Christianity. We talk about, we say, take up your cross. Or die daily. Or to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul even talks about boasting in his weaknesses. So what does all this mean? What does it mean to live as someone redeemed? Because somehow this living in this life and death of sin in our bodies is an advantage to us. Because we learn as redeemed children how to truly depend on Christ's power at work in us. Weakness is an invitation to lean into God's power. My strengths are my greatest impediment. So Christians, we get to rejoice when God makes us weak. And we've seen this in our family. We've seen disease just rack the bodies. And we've seen how that weakness allows us to lean even deeper into God. So I guess when we finally fall flat on our backs, we're actually looking in the right direction, huh? You know? So as a redeemed child of God, I'm learning to face the hardships and challenges that life brings, and they're there. You know, I was young. I didn't think about this stuff as much. I didn't think about what hardships there were. But there are young people that struggle with hardships. There are old people that have them. There are people who are walking through some difficult days in the body of this church. They're real. And somehow we experience them and the things that we're afraid of and the brokennesses of our life, these are a door into our Father's heart. And then we get to read things like this, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Being a redeemed child means we are loved. Now, Many of you don't get here in time on Sunday mornings to hear my welcome, but I do one. 
every Sunday, I do a welcome. I do like a, I actually talk about things. I don't just say like, hey, glad you're here. Let's sing. And I intentionally am weaving together in those welcomes some things that God's doing in my own heart. So I read from my journal. So when Pastor Lawrence asked me to talk about not just the Redeemer, but the redeemed life, what it means to live as a Christian who's redeemed, I got out my journal and I just took all of those welcome messages and wove them together so that you could all hear them because you're on time now. <clears throat> so in His love for us, Jesus truthfully tells us this. You are guilty, but He doesn't condemn us. He tells us how busted we are, how broken life is, yet He still purchases us. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means this. I'm not condemned by God when I fail others. I am not condemned by God for not doing everything, moms. You know? Moms carry that pressure. i got to do everything. You know, you're not condemned by God. God's not holding a standard over you. I am not condemned by God for messing up every single day. How many in this room feel like you just can't get it together? I feel that way. But I'm not condemned. I don't stand here condemned. I do not have to prove my worth before God. He sees me as worthy because of Jesus. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. I just, I don't know how I missed this passage for a long time in my life. I just discovered it last week. It says this If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Man, thank you. God, thank you for that. Holiness is Christ in me. My sin touches every place in me. Every place I touch. Sin is a powerful force flooding my thoughts, flooding my actions, my relationships. Sin is masquerading as something innocent. And that powerful, innocent lure is full of barbed hooks. I have this little fishing lure. It's a cricket. I've had it for a really long time. His name is Jiminy. And he's in my tackle box, and I will fish and fish and fish. And then I'm like, all right, it's time to get out Jiminy. And I'll throw Jiminy on there, and I will slay fish like crazy. All right? This is sin. Sin is your own personal Jiminy coming after you. It looks good, man. Sin is a lure. It looks real. It looks fascinating. It's flashy. It's tempting. You're wanting to go after it. And then it's got these barbed hooks just ready to just sink into you. And to pull you down. Take it all the way so you can be filleted by the devil. All right? 
And this is what happens. So I'm going to show you this. These are my kids crabbing at the beach, all right? They're going after those crabs. They are in mud up to their knees, and they are going after these crabs on this beach or on this, in this creek. And they're hunting. And they, were just, they would sneak up on these things, and they would go after them. Put them in a bucket, and then they would die. We didn't mean to kill him, but we did. <laughs> so, this is the very nature. The Bible warns us that he is, he calls him like a lion, seeking, prowling, looking for you to devour you. Now, I, do, I do not want to be sought by a lion. I mean, I've been to Africa a lot. And that's the last thing I want is to like turn around and see like, you know, they're crouched, these big padded paws just coming after me. But this is who is after us. Satan is our enemy. He's trying to take us down. He's trying to destroy us. These lies started in the Garden of Eden, hissing, did God really say? Lies. They're lies. They're staring us in the face. It's like that snake in the jungle book. Trust in me. You know that? His eyes start doing all these kooky things. And he says, trust in me. It's a little song. I, I, I take my shoes and socks off sometimes at home. And I put my foot up in my kid's face and like move it around like a snake. I say, trust in me. You know, just put my nasty foot in their face. Satan wants to hypnotize us and lock us in on him and his purposes. So he draws us into that. And it's a lure. Right, you can change that because people are getting freaked out out here, Stephen. <laughs> but, you know, when Satan's there, you can feel that hissing tongue and the heat of his breath, that accusing finger poking you in the chest. It feels so real. And he's saying, just look at you. You're a mess. You're a failure. You're damaged goods. You aren't ever going to be good enough, smart enough, together enough, liked enough, wanted enough, or do anything that counts enough. And your God isn't good enough to turn the bad of you around. That's the lie. That is a lie. All of that. As we are in gathering together as small groups in the summer and looking through 1 Peter, and by the way, it's Women's Week this week, we're learning that Jesus kills that lie. When Peter tells us that Jesus redeemed us when he, I love this phrase in 1 Peter, caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's at work. You see, the cross is the truth that counters the lies. It's the cross, paradoxically, that makes us safe. The cross makes me safe. This dying, this leaning into God, this taking up His cross actually makes me safe. This dying is really living. 
And I've read this Keller quote before. I'm going to throw it back up here so that you can see it. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from Him. What does this mean? Everyone gets their true identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. Human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love Him supremely, to center their lives on Him above anything else and build their very identities on Him. Anything other than this is sin. So being redeemed is being beloved. It's an identity shift. Christ becomes our identity. The heart implanted in us is never going to leave us. You know, when you look back at the book of Ruth, this is really interesting when we see this. It talks about this Redeemer. In verse 13, it talks about Boaz taking Ruth. Then in verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. They're not talking about this little baby anymore. They're talking about prophecy. But then it says this, he shall, be a rest- he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that comes in and gets this family rescued. But the redeemer that the women are talking about, they're pointing to this baby born in Bethlehem, which starts this conversation in the book of Ruth about this genealogical line, which is picked up in Matthew and leads straight into Jesus. We can't miss that when we see the the theology of the book of Ruth. It's pointing to this in a really deep way. So as we're born again into this living hope, and as we're redeemed and we're beloved, and we have this identity shift that comes, Christ becomes our identity. The heart is the heart of Christ. This is what is flowing through us, being purchased by the blood of Jesus and included as a Gentile in the bloodline of Jesus means this, Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, since I am in Christ, my identity is Christ. I've been redeemed. I've been purchased by His blood. I've been adopted as His child. I'm included in this. You know, I've said this a lot in this church. I am a Gentile. I do not have Israeli Jewish blood in my veins. I don't know where 
my family's from. I don't know where, I, I don't have this traced back. But I do know that. So when this is talking about the Gentile nations, this is talking about my family heritage. I am a Gentile. But I praise God that He in His providence put Gentile blood in Jesus and that that blood was shed for me. And that I'm included in that. And that Jesus purchased me from every tribe and people and language and nation. And all of you as well. All of our ethnic identities, all of our racial lines are a beautiful, beautiful thing. Created by God, loved by God, redeemed by His Son. That is awesome. That is just awesome. And the church that worships together when we get to heaven is going to be so diverse and so amazing because we are all Adopted into that family and loved equally. And since Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, and I am in Christ, and I have been purchased by His blood, and I've been adopted as His child, then guess what? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you, do you see your life lining up exactly with Jesus like that? Because if we don't, if it's like, well, Jesus, I mean, yeah, Jesus is God and he's a lot different and, and I'm not, I'm a sinner. So we're, we're like this. That's actually not the gospel. The gospel says what Jesus is, so are you. And God looks upon his son, he looks upon you. He sees you as His Son. Jesus is standing in our place. That's the Gospel when we see it like that. And then as redeemed children, we live like that? Man, that's powerful. Because the effects of sin and the lures and the temptations, they become less and less, attempt, they become less, and less tempting because we know that we can live in victory. We can live as redeemed children. And our status isn't going to change. Because if Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, then I am the same in His eyes through Jesus yesterday and today and forever. Man, that changes everything for me. That changes how I walk. It changes how I lead my family. It changes how I am a husband. It changes how I'm a father. It changes how I'm a pastor. It changes how I'm a friend. It changes how I am in private. Because it now begins to start allowing me to see this freedom to truly live. And knowing that I am going to mess up. I am. I'm going to mess up as a leader. I'm going to mess up as your pastor. I'm going to mess up as a dad, as a husband, as a friend. I'm going to let you down. 
but I'm redeemed. And I get to live in the hope of the resurrection, knowing that my sin, even though I'm going to get involved in it, even though I'm going to commit sin, yes, but it's forgiven. It is forgiven in the cross. And nothing can change that. Criticism's not going to change that. Failing is not going to shake that. Sickness and disease is not going to work you out of that. Doesn't mean you're all of a sudden out of the family. Depression is not going to get you down out of that. Because you are the same yesterday and today and forever. You're the same as Christ. So opinions can't determine your salvation. When my identity is built in the rock of Christ, then my identity is rock solid. Thank you. (laughs) As long as God is for me in Jesus... It doesn't matter what comes in front of me. I am not my yesterday. I'm not determined by what I was yesterday. I am not defined by the mess of my life. I am not a working definition of the failures that I've done in my past. I I am, hey, I'm tired of crawling into bed and thinking about the past and living in that guilt. It is, I don't have to live that way. I can live in Christ every day and I can know that even if I fail, that I walk in Christ. So as long as God is for me in Jesus, it doesn't matter what comes in front of me. It doesn't. When Jesus sees me, He sees me with a new name. Beloved. Beloved child of God. You are my son, Josh Benfield, and I love you. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, I am his child. And that status is not going to change. Therefore, by remembering this, by walking in it, by living it, and living the life of the redeemed, I am able to have freedom in Christ. If I look in the mirror named Jesus, I will see myself for who I really am. Christ in me. And this morning, I want us to see in that mirror clearly. I want us, and when we look at the book of Ruth, and we look at the genealogy in Matthew, I want us to see Christ. I want us to see the mirror of Jesus. We look in the mirror of the gospel, we should see Jesus, not our past, not our failures, not our guilt. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what it means to be redeemed by Christ. That's what it means that God put the book of Ruth in there. That's what it means for all of us. No matter who we are, no matter what family we've come from, no matter our ethnicity or our race, it's all beloved. It's all one. It's all been purchased. It's all been redeemed. It's all a part of this. And this is what it means to be a Christian. 
So when we live in that way and we turn it around and we go out, then the world is seeing that. They're seeing the love that we have. They're seeing the unity that we have. They're seeing the diversity that you have. And they say, what makes you different? What is going on with you? There's no way. They're, they're confused. And so we're the hope for them. Because there is no hope in the lure of the world. There is no hope in those shiny things. None at all. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in the gospel. I'm going to invite the band up here. And they're just going to start playing softly. And I, I just want you to take some time to reflect on this. So everybody, just get, get into a spot, get into a posture where you are alone with God right now. And I want you to, I want you to imagine that in this time of prayer, where you're personally reflecting on this, that you're looking into the mirror of the gospel. I want to invite you to look in that mirror. And I want you to think about all the things that Satan is saying to you. You're a failure. You're a mess. You're not going to amount to anything. And I want you to say, no. And turn and look in that mirror of the gospel and say, Jesus has redeemed me. So as we take some time to just pray, Worship Him. Think on Christ. Think on what it means.